Here on Orange Nation, wrapping up your week and heading you into the first weekend of summer after Memorial Day. We have so, so much to talk about. We'll be joined by Alan Griffin, Syracuse assistant coach, coming up in about half an hour from now. We'll talk Ty's battle with him. Maybe we'll talk a little NBA Finals with him after last night's Game 1. Seth Goldberg, Stephen Fonte with you up until 2 o'clock. And Steve, watching that game last night, a great game throughout, a back-and-forth game, a fun affair, I thought for sure. But I I think that there's one obvious place to start and where the whole game fell apart, and that came with about 30 seconds left. Durant 10 feet on the stripe, going to drive hard down the lane, bodies there, and a block foul is called. James trying to get him. An offensive foul is going to be called on Kevin Durant as James came over and took the block. They're going to look to see if he was in the restricted area, but I think we saw in that replay, he was a couple steps in front. Should be a legal block. Oh, boy. So they are going to call oh the block my. on James, and now James lurches forward. So does Ty Lue to get an explanation from Tony Brothers to tell him what he saw in replay. And with 30 seconds left in the game, in regulation, I should say, it seems like everything fell apart. There's that block charge, as you hear uh, Mark Kestisher and Hubie Brown talking about. It ends up going to replay, which I'm still confused, and I, I, I did not understand why they went to replay. And I think that Ty Lue kind of echoed that post game of, hey, what are we reviewing here? But the fact that you go to replay and the fact that the NBA, first off, has a rule on the books that says there's only one foul that we are going to be allowed to review, and it is going to be the most difficult foul to call in the entire sport it, is hilarious to me. It's, it's mind-blowing to me. First of all, I appreciate you doing the heavy lifting today. Um, I am not feeling well, but couldn't miss our final show of before course. the summer break. So I appreciate you doing uh, most of the uh, the heavy lifting, as I said. In regards to this block charge at the end, you know the rule. The, the rule is, and again, we learned it last night. It's not like I knew the rule. I mean, we didn't know the rule going into the game necessarily. But apparently there is a rule on the books that they can change the block charge in the final two minutes if... They look at it as though whether or not he was outside the restricted area with his feet. So that has to be the trigger. They have to go to the monitor to see if he was outside of the restricted area. He clearly was. And then if they are looking at it for that reason, they can then change the call, which is ludicrous to me. It is. It's really ridiculous. And, and, you know, this is the point that Ty Lue made, and, and we can hear from him here in a moment, but... He was so obviously outside the restricted zone that what are we looking at, right? Why why are we sending this to replay? And then to your point, the fact that that's the call that we look at and say, yes, that's the one foul call that we're going to be allowed to look at and overturn. It's not, oh, the ball might have gone out of bounds, but that guy got shoved in the back before he hit it out of bounds. That doesn't matter. That can't get overturned. But this, a block charge, which any basketball person, any reporter, any player, any coach, any any referee will tell you is the most difficult call to make. That's the one that we're going to let go get overturned? 
Like I, of, of all the things that you could, of, of all the fouls you can choose, that one? I understand if you want to look at in the final couple of minutes, you know, who the ball go off of, make sure you get sure. it right. Or even in this case, I mean, that's why the restricted arc is, is in the lane. It's to determine, you know, whether or not it can even be a charge. If, right. if the, you know, the defender's feet that uh, part is of it in, I understand. in the arc, that's a block. So I get them going to the monitor. And yes, in retrospect, we could look at it and say, well, he was clearly outside the arc, but it's... Happening fast, obviously, everything's on the line. There's a little bit more than 30 seconds left. Referees want to make sure they get it right. I have no problem with the refs going over to take a look. Or maybe Steve Kerr even said, hey, take a look at that. Or Kevin Durant sure. or somebody said, you know, I think he was in the arc. So you go over, you look at it, you can clearly see right away, okay, his, you know, LeBron was outside the arc. All right, call stands, go the other way. That was such a bang-bang play. The fact that we have never really seen that call, that particular call overturned, especially in a moment like that in Game 1 of the NBA Finals, the referees picked a heck of a time to set a precedent on this. And this is precisely why the NFL doesn't want to review pass interference calls or holding calls. Because if you slow anything down, you could talk yourself into, into anything, really, into seeing anything. You could trick your eyes into seeing something. Now, we have to remember, the NBA rule is different from the college rule. In college, you have to be set. You cannot be moving. That is not the rule in the NBA for a block charge. You can be moving. You have to be in, in the, the offensive player's path before he leaves his feet right. or starts to make a shooting motion. When you look at that replay, Seth, can, can you convince me that LeBron is not in his no. path? The one no. thing that I, I think you can tell me is that he turned his shoulder into him a little bit and kind of braced for the contact. To me, though, if you're going by the letter of the law, letter of the rule in the NBA, even after looking at it in slow motion, to me, that was a charge. And the fact that there is still some interpretation there, like this wasn't an egregious mistake that they overturned, the fact that it was still you know, a bang-bang play, even after looking at it on replay, and that different people could see different things, to me, that says the call should have stood the way that it was. Right. That's the other problem with this. Aside from the fact, and, and to your point about the replay— if you're solely looking at that play to say, okay, was his foot on the restricted arc or not? I I almost understand that, right? Like I, I almost understand that being reviewable. I, I really do. I th- okay, fine, because because that that predicates you know the whole play. That's right? black it, and white. Right. His it's, foot's either on the line or it's right. It, is it's it, you it's know? obvious. His foot is there or his foot is not there. To then say we can make a judgment call and and you use this analogy is really the equivalent of there's a holding flag. On the right guard and, you know, Pat Shermer or uh, Sean McDermott or Bill Belichick throw their challenge flag. They say, no, there wasn't a holding there. You got to go look at that. There wasn't a holding. It's a judgment call, right? Or that pass interference what wasn't really a pass interference. It's all a judgment call. So the fact that you're allowing that to get overturned is unbelievable to me. And, and the last thing you said, yeah, I, I mean, sure, LeBron was there. Maybe he turned. I, I don't know. I think that it was too close of a play to go back to an overturn. And and that's my problem with replay. If the if the call isn't obvious, don't do anything about it. Right? Like like take your take your minute, take your 90 seconds and that's why I advocate for a time limit because if you look at anything enough times and slow anything down enough, you'll find something different, right? Like if if you look at that play enough times and slow it down into enough motion, you will change your mind on what you initially thought the call should have been. So, have your time limit, look at it for a minute, and if you can't decide after a minute, just just forget about it, and, and go back to playing, and, and go back to what the call was, because if you don't have your evidence after a minute, you're not getting your evidence. And, and I think that we saw that last night. 
That was a play that if you slowed it down enough, you're like, mm, you know what, KD jumped and, and LeBron's still moving and he turned his shoulder a little bit and that's got to be a, chart, uh, a block. Like it, But if you watch that, I don't know. It was kind of bang-bang. I had no problem with them calling a charge on that play. I really didn't. I didn't have a problem either way. Like, if the referee saw block because he, you know, turned his shoulder into him, I think you had to stick with the original call. What do they say in the NFL all the time? It's like there has to be... Inconclusive evidence. Right. I mean, inconclusive evidence or, you know, it has to be an egregious mistake generally to overturn a big call like that in a big spot. I didn't think an egregious mistake was made. Even in slow-mo, you can make a case for both sides. And so I guess that's what I'm saying is that I hate that that rule even exists, that they could turn it over. There's a reason, and I'll bring up the NFL... Example again, there is a reason that the NFL doesn't want to review pass interference calls. Because this would happen four times in every NFL game. If you slowed down, and even if it was the final two minutes, if you slowed down pretty much any contested pass play in the NFL, don't you think you could talk yourself into, well, his left, you know, the defender's left hand is on the back room or he tugged his jersey ever so slightly? But, you know, in the heat of the moment, in real time, it, it you know probably wasn't a penalty, but if you slow it down, you might see something and trick your mind into saying, well, you know, by the letter of the law, you know, his his left hand is on his back here that you know may have impacted whatever, and then you throw a flag. There is a reason why the NFL doesn't want to do that, right? And and my guess is that this will be the last year that this is a thing in the NBA because for that to decide an NBA Finals game absurd is unacceptable frankly yeah it's unacceptable it's it's asinine it's it's ridiculous uh, it's all those long three syllable words that Stephen A probably used on on first take uh this morning it, it's it's a whole bunch of things and and I'm just seeing this tweet pop up from the the Cavaliers beat writer Jason Lloyd who covers the, the team very very well uh, but he he posted an article from last night and said J.R. Smith may or may not have known the score, but the Cavs were too busy seething over the officials to notice. And I think that this bite that I want to play coming up is going to show that they were so angry, annoyed, livid over this call that I, I think it really carried with them to that final possession and obviously in overtime. Right, once that game went to overtime, they had no shot. But I think it really all stemmed from that call, from the block charge. And and let's take a listen to Brian Windhorst. I've seen a lot of finals losses for LeBron. I've seen a lot of finals losses in this building for LeBron. I've never seen him so angry. He was furious. Now, I can't say what he said when he was not on microphone, but I'll just say that LeBron felt like they got the wrong end of the stick tonight. Just a lot more stronger than that. Not because of J.R. Smith. I know that everybody in the world is going to make fun of J.R. Smith, and he deserves a certain amount of it for sure. Not at George Hill and Mr. Free Throw. They're angry at the block charge call reversal. They feel like by the letter of the law it may have been right, but by the spirit of the law it wasn't. I've never seen Ty Lue so upset. He was furious. Uh, He basically left immediately after his press conference, didn't talk to anybody, put his headphones on, and immediately went to the bus. Um, It's going to take the Cavs two days to get over that call, and I don't think that they're going to like it as it goes on, and they they watch it more times on replay. And, you know, Kevin Love... Uh, echoed those sentiments later on. He said, you know what, we're more annoyed about the block charge than we are about JR. And and I think that when you look back at the end of that game and it all fell apart and there there's the JR Smith play, there's overtime where they just get blown out, there's Tristan Thompson getting ejected from the game with two seconds left in overtime, which I, I don't know what happened there and I don't know why he was ejected, to be totally honest. I didn't see anything uh nefarious or crazy or or over the top on that final play. So I don't know why he got ejected. But the fact that that all happened, I think, stems from this block charge and this wrong call and this and the way that it was overturned. 
In regards to Tristan, uh, the referee said that he, he when he contested, he put his elbow basically in Livingston's face. And so, you know, with whatever there was, 10 right. seconds no, left. I, it, I mean, I didn't see it, right. but yes. That, that's, what the, that's what they said anyway. And, and Tristan was, uh, was ejected. And oh, by the way, Cavs have to hold their breath on this. Now, if the NBA suspends Tristan Thompson and or Kevin Love, because Kevin, Kevin Love came, off the, came off the bench. So again, by the letter of the law... Kevin he deserves Love a suspension. Should be suspended for game two by the letter of the law. I'm not saying he should be suspended. If the NBA suspends Kevin Love and or Tristan Thompson after the way that game ended and the referees took it from him, um, you know, you, you think people are angry now? Uh, wait until that happens. So I don't think they will be suspended, but they do have to hold their breath uh, on that. In regards to you know that call affecting them in overtime. I understand what you're saying. When that game went into overtime, even if that it call had not happened, the, the game was over. I mean, you knew that the Warriors felt like they had second life and they were going to be able to to win that game. You know, you said the J.R. Smith play, Tristan Thompson, you know, on down the list. You, you didn't mention the name George Hill. And if George Hill just makes the free throw, right. a career 80% free throw shooter, and, and listen, I'm not trying to minimize that situation. I mean, that is as pressure-packed as it gets. So, again, I'm not saying that I'm not going to crush him for it because you're allowed to miss Make a free, the free throw, throw and you but, win the game. Yeah, but we probably. Well, yeah. I mean, I four seconds left. I mean, Warriors could get a shot off, but yes, you probably win the game. So, um, you know, I think George Hill has to take some of the the ownership and and some of the blame on this as well. But right. but it, I think uh, I but you know even that I, I mean he could have been you know if they're saying everybody's rattled and and this is the angriest he's seen LeBron after games. He could have been rattled standing on the free throw line, right? Sure. I mean, he, that could have knocked him off his game a little bit. Sure. And, you know, stupid foul by Kevin Love on, yeah, on Steph Curry. Absolutely. I mean, there, there is so much blame to go around. Bottom line is this, Seth. The Cavs should have won that game. They should have won that game. You know, the refs took it from them, but they also made some mistakes down the stretch that cost them that game in regulation. It wasn't solely because of the officials. The Kevin Love foul, that was a big mistake. Obviously, George Hill missing the free throw. J.R. Smith, what happened you know, right. with him dribbling the ball out, not I totally knowing what the score was. We're going we're gonna to sit here and blame the refs, and, and I am the last person to say blame the ref, blame the ref, blame the ref, because I, I just I don't believe in that. But at the same time, you know, the, as you're saying and listing these off, the Cavs had so many opportunities that, that it really is their problem and their fault that they, they didn't wrap this up. It's a shame because they played well enough to win. And if they right. had won that game, you know, all these people say, oh, this series is going to be boring and it's the fourth time and the Warriors are the biggest favorites since, you know, Ever. go as far right. back as you want. And, you know, the biggest point spread of an NBA Finals game since 1991. And it's, it's going to be lopsided. The Cavs win that game. All of a sudden, there is a lot of intrigue with Everything this series. Everything changes. And they get confidence, and maybe the Warriors question themselves a little bit. Cleveland could lose by 40 in Game 2, and then the series goes back to Cleveland, and you know there is intrigue for at least another week until you get through Games 3 and 4, and, right. and you see what happens. So that result changes the entire complexion of the series, and it's a shame from a you know just a, a media standpoint, from a fan standpoint. It would have been intriguing if they had won, and I feel bad for LeBron James because... He did everything he could have done. They should have won. They played well enough to win. He certainly played well enough to win. They collectively played well enough to win, and they had it taken from him in the in the final minute of regulation. Yeah, Steve, that's something I wanted to get to later. LeBron James played one of the all-time great NBA Finals game, 51-8-8. Eight and, eight. And, and, and you're not even, first off, you're not even talking about it. But second, uh, he deserved to win, and, and what more can he do? So we'll get to that later on, probably at the start of hour number two. Uh, we have to talk about the other play at the end of the game. We will do that next. I have two 
amazing pieces of audio. Stick around for the next couple of minutes and, and come back with us here on ESPN Radio. This is Orange Nation with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. Back here on ESPN Radio, we are brought to you by Skinny Atlas Small Engine. Now under new ownership, your premier LS tractor and steel dealer for sales, service, and repair. We go up until 2 o'clock, about 10 minutes from now. Well, 8 minutes from now, we'll have Alan Griffin, Syracuse assistant basketball coach, on with us talking about Tyus Battle's return, Syracuse going into next season with all five starters coming back. Seth and Steve with you. And uh, Steve, I think that it is time to get to the the most mind-numbing part of last night's game, uh, the part that became a Twitter sensation, and uh, I think the most fun part of last night's game, and that is uh, J.R. Smith's confusing play at the end, which can only be summed up as uh, a very J.R. Smith play. Yeah, he clearly didn't know what the score was. And there's all this talk after the game, you know, reporters asking Ty Lue, reporters asking LeBron, reporters asking J.R. Smith. Like, I don't even need to hear what they say. And, you know, I'm sure we could get to that. Um, It's clear, though, just watch the play. It's clear he He did not. He had no idea. He was not looking to shoot at all. He was not looking to pass until he saw LeBron feverishly pointing. (laughs) pointing toward, you know, the basket, like do something. And then by then it was too late. He got the rebound. He dribbled it out. He was bracing to get fouled. He was trying to run out the clock. He really and then was. You can see now. Uh, I'm not a lip reader, but there are professional lip readers out he there said, who have said, "I thought, I we, thought were we were." I think. It, I think it was. I thought we were ahead. Right. I think is what it, what the direct quote was for people who watched it and the lip readers out there. You know, clear as day. They slow it down. They say he's saying, "I thought we were ahead." Um, and then after the game, he said he didn't. He right. said we. Knew, I knew the score, I which knew. clearly you didn't because you said that. Uh, I did want to play. T- I, I mentioned before the break. I wanted to play two pieces of audio for you. Two different calls of this. First off, on ESPN Radio, uh, which you would have heard here on ESPN Radio Syracuse. And I need to. Uh, I need to throw this disclaimer out there. ESPN Radio's coverage of the NBA Finals is amazing. It is incredible. It is a really jo- a really great job. Well done. Uh, they do a really good job, and Mark Kestesher is very, very good at what he does. And uh, this happened. George Hill receives the ball, trying to untie the game. 4.7 seconds to go in game one. Free throw line to our right. Hill dips, free throw up. Free throw's going to be short. Rebounded by Smith. Two seconds to go. He dribbles out. They got a foul. They can't get him. The Cavaliers on the road, stunning the Golden State Warriors in game one. Tied at 107. My bad. Tied at 107. Oops. I I mean, like, like Mark Kessinger is really good at this, and he got confused because J.R. Smith went and ran the wrong way. Well, if he's running the ball out, they must be ahead. Right? I mean, right, exactly. <laughs> he even said at the beginning of the clip, like, listen to the very start of it. George Hill receives the ball, trying to untie the game. Like, he knew what was going on. He, he knew the situation, and yet J.R. Smith gets a rebound five feet from the basket, doesn't shoot, and he's like, oh, they must be losing, or they must be winning. Like, it's just mind-blowing to me. Like, I, I don't know how, I don't know how if, as, as a professional basketball you, player, you don't get the ball with five, five seconds left, five feet from the basket, and don't just think I'm going up. Or pump fake and go up. Because obviously Durant was on me. He said right. it after. He was like, well, Durant's seven foot. And, <laughs> you know, okay, well, you got the rebound. Get pump fouled. fake. Get right. Go Get fouled. Or at least shoot the ball. Don't right. There was no way that he thought the game was tied. There's no, no way. No, and I don't no care. Chance. I don't care about the explanation. And, and this is what I would say. Get to your other clip, and then I, yeah. I have one more point I want to uh, make. 
the Cavaliers Spanish Radio Network. Gira en su mano izquierda, dobla las rodillas, la pone en órbita. Gil, falla el segundo, el rebote es de JR. ¿Por qué salió JR si estamos perdiendo por un? Estamos empatados. JR Smith, qué falta de mente de JR Smith, Dios mío. JR Smith, qué pasa, qué falta JR Smith. Qué barbaridad, qué manera de no estar en el partido, JR Smith. <laughs> there are a couple of things I understand there. I took Spanish for a long time, but there are only a couple of words I can pick out. Por qué salió means why are you leaving? Uh, que pasa, obviously. Adios míos, obviously you know. Uh, but like, I, I love how the mood just turns and, and he's just like, where are you going, JR? Where are you going? What are you doing? The rest of that was essentially loose translation. JR Smith is an idiot. I mean, that's he, basically, a, a, yes. Loose translation. Um, que falta. Like, what are you thinking? We, yeah. are, we are a very forgiving society. Um, we've seen this time and time again, in, in sports especially. When you mess up, if you say, I messed up, generally, people forgive you, right? Yes. Whether it's PD use or a big blunder. I mean, you know, Chris Weber calling the timeout that everybody remembers, and, and this play is kind of being related to that. What did Chris Weber do after the game? He said, you know, point blank, I called timeout, we didn't have any, and I cost our team the national championship. Right. Um, and, you know, he said it, had it like he was choked up, and it's a forgiving society. And we generally forgive guys who mess up if they say that they messed up. Just say, if you're J.R. Smith, Just and I realize it's up. tough to do it, but face the music, you messed up. I didn't know what the score was. Just It's as simple as that, and then as a team, you move on. Yeah, I mean, look, that, that serious basketball implica implications, that cost them game one, right? Like, we can laugh and we can be like, ah, oh, J.R., look at what he's doing. But, like, that cost, like, like ultimately that cost them game one because that was the last thing to happen, right? So, sure, maybe the block charge thing changes things, but you know what would have happened if he just went up, right? Or like if, he, if he just put the ball up and got to the free throw line, like, you know what happens When in there. doubt, pass the ball to LeBron. Right. And Draymond Green actually said that after the game. He go, you know, somebody said, well, what, was, what was your first thought? And he's like, well, my first thought would have been, where's LeBron? <laughs> right. Um, and if he had passed it to LeBron, is there any doubt in your mind LeBron would have made that shot? No, no doubt. I mean, there was a good, you know, four seconds, maybe three by the time he gets it. Nobody's on him. All the Warriors were in the lane. LeBron was at the three-point line right. by himself. He's he probably the doesn't shot. put up the three, probably drives a little bit. But to me, there's no doubt he's making the shot. So, And by the way, Amazing how that perception has changed over the last yeah, five years, right? right? Because yeah. five, five years ago, even when he was with Miami, you're yeah, like, he would have made the shot. I don't want to take that passed shot. It. Right. He would have passed it. Yeah, I want Ray Allen taking that shot. I don't want him taking that shot. Like it's amazing how that changed. And and you know, I I think this was interesting and and to the point that we've been talking about with this. And I know we've got to get to Alan Griffin. Uh, Steve Kerr, obviously, obviously, was asked about the J.R. Smith play after. I was disappointed that we didn't get the rebound first, and then um, you know we got we got lucky. He. Um, he, he could have taken a shot, but he dribbled out. I guess he thought they were ahead. Um, reminded me of a play. I'm a basketball junkie, so I don't know. Derek Harper dribbled, a, dribbled a, uh, the game out and clock out with Dallas years ago. Uh, sometimes this stuff happens. It's just, um, you know, we got lucky. We got lucky. Like, he, he realizes what happened there. They got lucky. They caught a break. JR messed up. He had a you know, brain cramp. It's not, uh, unfortunately for him, not the first time this has happened in his career. Uh, but the Golden State Warriors got lucky. Steve Kerr realizes it sounds like Draymond Green realizes too. You know the guy who's breathing the hu hugest sigh of relief today? George Hill. Well, I, I think it's Kevin Durant. <laughs> because oh, if, yeah. if Cleveland wins that game, how does Kevin Durant at seven feet get pushed under the basket by J.R. Smith oh, yeah, and give up the big... I mean, he doesn't even put a body on Didn't even try to box him out. So Kevin Durant's awfully lucky. And you're right. Nobody's talking about George Hill. <laughs> no but one cares. He should share in the blame as well. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a break. We're coming back with Alan Griffin after this.
Our take on the day's top stories. It's Today's Business on Orange Nation. Back on ESPN Radio 97.7 and 100.1. Today's Business here on Orange Nation. Seth Goldberg with you up until 2 o'clock. Steve uh, battling battling some, uh, some uh, I don't know, a cold, Max, yeah. I we'll think? Call, we'll call, him, we'll we'll call, call it a cold. cold? I don't know. Uh, it's the so last today's business for a is, while. It is. So uh, Steve was here for hour number one. He headed out, and uh, we're taking you through hour number two. Uh, what do you have for us, Max? Uh, this Big Ten ACC challenge is very interesting this year. Syracuse taking a trip to Ohio State. Orange are 2-5 and five against the Buckeyes in every seven meetings. Uh, the last one coming in 2012 in the Elite Eight, where Ohio State won 77-70. Uh, their, return, their top returning player will be their point guard, C.J. Jackson, who averaged 11 points last year. They do lose two out of their three leading scorers, including the Big Ten Player of the Year, Keita Bates-Diop. Right. Uh, kind of surprising year last year under first-year coach Chris Holtman, finishing 25-9, and tied for second in the Big Ten. Yeah, they were sneaky good last year. Uh, you know, the the thing is, they lose Keita Bates-Diop, which is, you know, why I said... Uh, you know, probably about ten minutes ago, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say I know what their team is going to be. Bates Diop was was so much a part of that team and so important a part of that team that it's hard to know. Uh, with that being said, I, I like this. I it, it'll be fun. They go out to Columbus, which is you know, which I'm sure is going to be a a good trip. And uh, the one thing I will say, I was surprised it wasn't Michigan State. Yeah, I thought that Syracuse was going to be heading to to Michigan State to, to play the Spartans, given what they had just done in the tournament. So I was, I was a little surprised about that. Would have made sense. Um, still, I think this is a good matchup. Plus, usually happens pretty early on in the year. Yeah, it's uh, November, is, November 28th. Right, which is good to you know stack your schedule a little bit in the beginning of the year with some right. challenging games. But. Yeah, no, I, I mean, look, that, that's, that's the whole point of this, and, and that's what I was trying to say before, is you're looking for quality opponents, and whether that comes in the neutral site game against Kansas or taking a trip to Atlantis or to Maui or wherever you may want during Thanksgiving week, uh, you've got to find quality opponents, and, and this is just one way of doing it because these are the games that are going to get you into the tournament, right? The, these, are the gonna, these are the games that are going to get you you know, up a seed line by winning that game because I would, I would venture to guess, and, and maybe I'm just going to be way off, I would imagine that Ohio State stays as the top 75 RPI team over the course of the year, and if you do that and you beat them on the road, that's quadrant one win, and it came on November 28th. Yeah, it's always nice to have one of those in your back pocket early on. But let's get to another story here, Seth. Okay. You're you're a baseball fan, obviously. John Smoltz, you know what he did? Recently. He's, a, he's a golfer. He is right? a golfer. He's a now. really good golfer. He's 51 years old now. He qualified for the U.S. Senior Open on Thursday, emerging from a three man playoff and snagging the final spot. Uh, what's remarkable about John Smoltz, and I didn't, I guess I was reminded of this when I read this article, was he finished with a, a career record of 213 and 155, and he had 154 saves, yes. making him the only pitcher in history with 200 wins and 150 saves. Yes. That's amazing. That's unbelievable. It, it, it's it's one of those stats that doesn't really make all that much sense, um, and it's it's why he was a first ballot surefire Hall of Famer when he finally you know retired. Yeah. Uh, but the the transition he made in his career from starter to reliever back to starter and to be as good as he was at both is is one of those things that doesn't make all that much sense in sports because that that's not supposed to happen, right? Once once you kind of move out of the starting rotation and go to the bullpen, like. 
That that's typically typically a sign that you're losing something. Right. And he not only wasn't losing something, he came back afterwards and started again and was very effective. Uh, but yeah, uh, apparently, apparently, uh, back when they were all on the Braves, the golf rounds between Maddox, Glavin, and, and Smoltz, Smoltz yeah. were like these legendary yeah. golfing, like golf outings. Like they, they apparently were all really good and all obviously hyper competitive, and they were apparently just in incredible things to watch. I mean, those are three fantastic baseball players as right. well. I can. And plus, they pitch, so you know they don't have to pick up a bat exactly. too often. Exactly, probably pretty good golfers. I mean, clearly, if he's qualifying for the Senior Open, I would imagine. What do you have to be a scratch golfer to? I think you have to be pretty close. Pretty close. Qualify for that? Yeah, I think so. I would think so. I mean, you never know. You could just play out of your mind. But anyway, the two eight twenty eighteen. Didn't, uh, didn't Tony Romo try and? Yeah, he did compete, and so is Steph Curry and some pro am tournaments. But I, I don't know think... Justin Timberlake has. He's also a pretty good golfer. I know Romo's really Steph good. Is Romo like was Steph is good, right? Steph and Romo both shot under in two of their rounds, I think. Right. And they both made the cut. And Smoltz That's obviously impressive. his next challenge is going to be making the cut in this. Right. <laughs> so the he's US playing out Senior Open. He's playing out in Colorado on June 28th. But while we're talking about a former MLB star, we could talk about the MLB a little more in this next story. Uh, Russell Wilson and Sierra buying into the MLB to Portland move, apparently. I think this is really interesting. Um, I think that if baseball is going to expand, I think the most obvious candidate uh, for a couple of reasons is Montreal. You know, as long yeah. as they've got a group there, they've got a stadium, They, you know, as, as long as they've got everything figured out, that is the most obvious place to go back to, right? Go, go put a team in Montreal. The other one that you hear a lot about is Mexico City or Monterey or, or something like that down in Mexico. Okay, that makes sense too. I think the team, the the city, and and there are probably two that make the most sense in the U.S. are Charlotte and Portland. Yep. And so to get some money behind this group in Portland, Portland, uh, to get some name recognition behind this group in Portland, I think is really important because it's Russell Wilson and Sierra. So you're you're getting kind of both of them on this on this deal. Um, they they've already basically moved forward with like plans to build a stadium. So. They're they're like going all in on this. They're ready to move. And something I saw about this story earlier, Max, and I'm not sure if you had seen this. Russell Wilson is also in on the group to bring basketball bring yeah. back to Seattle. He wants to bring so, the Sonics back. Yeah. So, so I, I think this is really interesting. And and it's something that um doesn't it say a little bit about like the modern athlete? You know, like doesn't it say a little bit about like the guys who are at the top of their game, and, and they're not just quarterbacks, they're not just small forwards, they're not just great athletes, but they kind of see the bigger picture, and we're seeing that with A-Rod. He retired, and he's got this big business thing going on, and you know he's on Shark Tank, and he's on Sunday Night Baseball, and he's on Fox during the postseason, and you know you see this uh, to an extent with Michael Strahan, like, yeah. yeah, he does Fox on Sundays, but like he's on Good Morning America and like has his own clothing line and like has this business thing going on, uh, you know. And LeBron James, we know all about his business ventures with uh, the uninter- uninterrupted and and that forum and and you know a lot of stuff that he's looking into and and a lot of Kevin Durant's move to Golden State was about Silicon Valley and being right there in the in the thick of it. So I think that this idea speaks a lot to the modern athlete, right? Where. Russell Westbrook sees an opportunity to be an athlete, obviously, live in that community, and you know bring something to the Pacific Northwest, whether it's a basketball team back to Seattle or or a baseball team to Portland. And I think Seattle's one of those cities that you know the fan base out there 
as intense. They are yes. into their sports, and I think they deserve more than just football. And I think that baseball would be a great like. Well, they've got. Well, the, I mean, they've got yeah. the Mariners already, but right, like right. you could have like the interstate rivalries yeah. like going on between exactly. Portland and Seattle. That's why I, I've also or, I've and, also advocated that I think a baseball team in Vancouver would be good for that same reason. Yeah. Right. You you give them like a close rival. The the Seattle Mariners. Um, if you look at a map. The Seattle Mariners are further from their closest opponent than any other team in baseball because they're up in Seattle. And if you go east, the close like if you just go directly east, the closest opponent is the Minnesota Twins. Yeah, you know and that's if, like if you a go, couple states over, multiple right. Yeah. If you go south, the nearest opponent is is the Giants. Right. So it, it's not like any of these, and, and that's through the whole state of Oregon and most of the state of Washington yeah. and a good chunk of California. So. It's not like they're close to any team. So I think putting a team in Portland or putting a team in Vancouver could be very beneficial to them as far as the basketball goes. Well, that makes more sense than the baseball because it's already sure. happened and you know what you have exactly. there. And it sucks. That's what I was going to say. The Supersonics had their team move right after they got Kevin Durant and Russell <laughs> yes. Westbrook. Well, and, and you know what? I Maybe I'm missing this year. Maybe I was too young and I don't remember it correctly. But I don't remember... The 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 fan base falling off there. I don't no, remember. No, it didn't at all. Like I, I, when you look at some places and some teams that have relocated, you know, watch watch specifically like the Montreal Expos when they moved. They nobody no was one, going. Yeah, no one was right? going so, to those games. So that made sense. Move them because there's no interest. I didn't see that in Seattle, and the reason it moved is because it was sold to some rich guys from Oklahoma City who wanted a team in Oklahoma City. Yeah. Which, by the way. They're right. If they're going to go pay to to buy a team, they can do what they want. That's with your it. right to move yeah. the team. But with that being said, it didn't seem like Seattle was a a city that was like, you know what, this just isn't working here. Like it's it's not like, hey, this just doesn't work. We can't do this anymore. And there was they were about to be so good. Well, that's yeah. the other thing. Like, yeah. you just got teased if you're, you know. Yes. One of my, by the way, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite jerseys that I've got hanging up in my closet. Is I've got a Kevin Durant Sonics jersey. Yeah, throwback. Yes, throwback. While we're talking NBA, we might as well bring up uh, this whole Colangelo 76ers ordeal <laughs> yes. again because it's so fun. Um, apparently today sources are saying that the internal probe into the situation is yet to be completed. Uh, again, we're talking about the tweets and the burner accounts that the Sixers president uh, Brian Colangelo was using. Um, but it looks like they're going to part ways with him. And this whole thing took a turn when he came out today and blamed his wife <laughs> yes. for the burner accounts. Yes. Well, I don't know if you saw this, but but uh, 76ers Twitter like went to work and they were like, oh, those three accounts that all have the same last two numbers, those aren't Brian Colangelo's phone numbers. Those are Brian Colangelo's wife's phone numbers. <laughs> like they, they found his wife's phone number somewhere and it had the last two digits that matched up with the other three accounts. Uh, I think, and, and look... I think that you got to fire him no matter what. Like yes. I, I think that you like I, I think we've reached the point that you've got to get rid of Brian Colangelo whether he knew whether he didn't know. Like I, I don't think it matters because I think perception in this case is reality and you can't and, enter the free agency period exactly. with this. Well, not only that, you can't enter free agency, you're right, but you also I don't think you can like stare the players that you've got in the face. Right. With, After you with, called them out and with what has been said on tw- on those Twitter accounts. Yeah. Now, with that being said, obviously it would be unfortunate if he lost his job for something he truly didn't do. But at the same time, I I think that's what you've got to deal with in this situation. Something interesting, though, about it being his wife and about 
if it was his wife and he, and Brian Colangelo truly didn't know, why, and here's the question that I still don't know the answer to and I'm still struggling to figure out, when the reporter told the 76ers, I know of these two accounts, why did the other three get locked? It's a, right? such a weird right? if he, situation. If, if he didn't, if Brian Colangelo didn't know and nobody in the Sixers knew and it was his wife, why did those three accounts get locked before they got back to him? Because I don't think that's something that Brian Colangelo would turn to his wife and be like, oh, you you would never believe this story that just came down to work in the last 15 minutes. Like, that's not that big a deal, right? Right. So, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that's something that you're just, like, picking up the phone, dialing somebody up and being like, hey, you're not going to believe this story. Right. Like, if you, if you have no suspicion that it's them. Well, right? and so, he's already admitted to having one, even though it has right. no activity on it. Just He said it was to monitor, you know, right. mentions and, and whatnot which, on the 76ers which, account, which is fine. By the way, I get it. Yeah. Like, I, I understand that. So, you know, I'm, I, I don't buy into this, it was his wife's story. Like I, I it think looks that, like he's just trying to like look it, cop out. And you know just other cover people's him. you you know other people's phone numbers, right? Yeah, I know other people's phone numbers. Right. You know what you would do if you didn't want it to trace back to you? You would use somebody use else's, someone phone, else's number. phone number. Right. <laughs> so so Brian Colangelo just being like, oh no, it was my wife. Like I promised I didn't do anything. Like you know your wife's cell phone number. It's like good try, dude. Yeah, like good try. You you know her cell phone number. So and just to I'm throw your wife it. under the bus like I that. I mean, come on, man. I know. It's uh, not a good look. Not a great look at all. No. That's all I got for you today, though. All right. That was today's business. Let's take a break. We'll wrap it up. We'll come back after this.